Good afternoon. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. This fall, we are examining about half a dozen places in the book of Ephesians where the author tells followers of Christ to be light. So let's briefly uh, imagine what it might be like to live a life without any light. I got two quick examples. Uh, The Mexican tetra fish lives throughout eastern Mexico in creeks and caves and rivers. It's a freshwater fish and it lives its entire life without eyeballs. Scientists and aquarium owners have noticed that this particular species has a really good memory, so they'll swim about their environments slowly, occasionally bumping into things, but over time they'll memorize the placement of the things around them and then learn to swim in sort of avoidant patterns, kind of like a tiny albino Roomba vacuum cleaner, right? (laughs) There's another example, the blind legless lizard, that's actually the name of a real animal, it's called the blind legless lizard, and it's found in the mountains of Cambodia. Now, truth be told, a blind legless lizard sounds a lot to me like a worm, right? I'm no scientist, but they say it's an actual species of lizards, and it lives most of its life underground hunting ants and termites. So isn't it strange to think that there's entire species of animals that live underground, and they live in caves, and they completely lack the capacity for sight? It's kind of sad, really. In the book of Ephesians, the author equates eyes and light, this metaphor, And the author often equates eyes and lights with hope. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul declares that Christians should have a growing hope throughout their time on this earth. And this hope, according to those verses, is connected to a greater capacity to comprehend a few specific things God wants to give us in increasing measure. But just, just as that there's animals that live in a literal darkness... The writer of Ephesians is using this metaphor to remind us that there's people that are around us living in a great darkness, and and according to the metaphor, that darkness that, that people that surround us live in is living with a lack of hope. How tragic to live in the darkness of a lack of hope. How unfortunate to go day by day living lonely and discouraged and pessimistically certain that things are not going to get better and there's no greater meaning and that God is not in control. But the good news is that in Ephesians 5, 8, Paul writes to Christians and he says this, You were once darkness, but now you are light. Light in the Lord, so live as light. And then for our great benefit, there's several other places in the book of Ephesians where we're giving detailed insights into how we can live with a hope and how we can live in a way that brings hope to others that are living in that darkness of an absence of hope. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we study one of these passages. Our main idea this afternoon is this that a primary and powerful way that we can produce light and hope in the lives of others is by living united with others who follow Christ. Let me say that again. 
according to the book of Ephesians, according to the passage in Ephesians 4 that we're going to study for the next 15 or 18 minutes, one of the primary ways that we can bring hope into the lives of others is to live unified with other Christians. And this is Montana. Some of you are lone wolves, right? Some of you spiritually are just lone wolves doing your own thing. This isn't me talking. This is Paul. This is Ephesians. We can bring light and hope into the lives of others with our ability to love and be unified with the others that are in this room right now. Is Mark here? Can I get an amen, Mark? All right. (laughs) So let's investigate what Ephesians teaches us on the power of Christian unity to produce light and hope in the lives of others. And let's do it in just two quick sections. In section one, let's talk about what Ephesians says about why loving and liking and getting along with other Christians is often so difficult. Ephesians talks about that. And in section two, let's, let's spend most of our time with some principles on how we can get better at pursuing and achieving Christian unity. All right, section one. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, and I don't want any amens during this part, but let's talk about why Christian unity is so difficult. Let's talk about some things that are community killers and some things that really make living with this light and this uh, unity with other Christians so difficult. The first one is this. A hope that God is in control in, 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 a, in a declaration that we have experienced new life in Christ It's something that all believers have in common, but sometimes believers operate without hope, right? Sometimes believers are pessimistic uh, and they're certain that uh, things are out of control and they've never been so bad. And it's hard to be unified with people that are pessimistic and that they feel like God has lost control. Uh, Write down Ephesians 1.18, and I hope you get a chance to look at it later in the week, but but Paul is kind of starting off this letter with this idea that Christians should be unified in a hope that we have new life because of what Christ has done for us, and God is in control. That's something that is supposed to unite us. It's something that we're supposed to all have in common. So when someone is just kind of... uh, not operating with that hope, uh, it's hard to have unity. When a Christ follower acts or speaks without hope that God is in control or that God is not working for an eventual or an ultimate good, it discourages and it repels and it extinguishes this hope that we're supposed to have. I love the fall. It's one of my favorite times of the year, except during election years. I hate election years. I hate the fall and election years because almost every week at least one person is going to pull me aside and they're going to slump their shoulders and they're basically going to say something along the lines of, Pastor Scott, if so-and-so wins the election, God's going to lose control. Everything's going to go downhill. The world's never going to be worse than, it, than it's going to be if so-and-so wins the election. And I, you know, I get it from, from both political sides. And it's so discouraging. And sometimes I try to encourage them with the reminder that we have entire books of the Bible that are meant to remind us that God is in control and we can have hope and God's plan goes forward even during eras of terrible governments. That's what the book of Esther is all about. That's what Ezekiel is all about. That's what Revelation is all about. That's what Daniel is all about. 
And you think some clown who's running for office is going to be worse than the characters in those books? Like, no, it's, it's not. Well, I'm getting off track. <laughs> the point is that believers are supposed to be united in a hope that God is in control and that, and that Jesus brings new spiritual life. And when we lose the discipline of, of living with that hope, it discourages others and it's very divisive. Another place in Ephesians that talks about why Christian unity is difficult is in Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 4. And it also talks about it in Ephesians 4, 19. And it says that believers can live loyal to their secular impulses. Okay? It says in Ephesians 2, 3 that we were dead in our sin before we were made alive in Christ. And it's basically saying that if you're a follower of Christ, your life can be broken into two points. The first point is when you were just kind of living according to your impulses and, and how you'd been just kind of taught to live growing up as an adolescent and self-centered and looking out for yourself. But then we become alive in Christ and we start to have a new conscience and a new value system and an impetus to love others. But what Paul is saying there is that we can, we can revert back to our original nature. We can go from being made alive in Christ back to how we used to think and operate. And that can be really hard to be united with people that are, that are reverting back to the way that they used to think and they used to live and they used to love. And here's maybe a healthful illustration. A rescue dog used to live in filth and abuse. That's why it needed to be rescued. And then it was placed in a loving and caring environment. But when I was in college, my parents got a rescue dog, and even though we took it to a trainer, even though we fed it at you know, regular times, and even though we were very gentle, and even though we were very affectionate with that dog, it had been in its abusive home long enough where every time you turned your back to that dog, it would attack. It would try to bite you. And there was nothing that we could do, even with love and affection, and even in this new placement, to get it to fully revert out of those original behaviors that it used to have. And sadly, what Paul is saying here in this letter to the Ephesians is that sometimes churchgoers are like that rescue dog that reverts back to its original behavior. Have you ever been bitten by surprise? from somebody that you're in a church small group with or somebody that you thought you were on good terms with. Because Paul's saying that we, we all have that ability to revert back to that self-centered behavior that puts yourself first. And even people in the church can do that from time to time. I won't go on and on because we've probably all had negative experiences with somebody who went to church but just kind of stepped back into that humanistic perspective. Well, a third reason why unity in a church can be very difficult uh, is said in Ephesians 2, 11 to 12. And Paul is using the main religious distinctions of that time, which were Jew and Gentile. So there were people that grew up Jewish and people that did not grow up Jewish. And he's basically saying, just like there used to be two different ways that we thought of ourselves, now we're one in Christ. So what Paul is really saying there is that even in churches, there's cultural and ethnic divisions. And uh, maybe that's more true in some places than others, but I think that we would all agree uh, that sometimes in churches, people separate or divide based on cultural or ethnic differences. 
Um, one fun thing that's live, one thing that's fun about living in Montana is that people tend to connect more about the things that they have in common and the things that they like than where they came from or what their ethnicity is. It's a fairly inclusive place. Uh, but what I would point out is that just human nature being what it is, even people that have gone to church for decades still find ways to sort of segregate or divide. Okay, a couple quick examples. We tend to divide, and I'm not talking about where we sit when we come in on a Sunday afternoon. I'm talking more about just who we gravitate to talk to after a service, who we invite into our homes, who we go on hikes with. It's generally true that the singles hang out with the singles and the married hang out with the married. It's generally true that people that had their children go to public schools hang out with the other people that had their children go to public schools, and the people that grew up homeschooling their children tend to hang out with other people that homeschooled their children. We tend to hang out with the people that prefer contemporary or more recent music, with others who have the same preferences, and people that prefer hymns tend to talk after dinner uh, at a dinner party with the other people that prefer to sing hymns. And we're all, of course, divided by progressive politics and conservative politics. And I just mean to say that there's still ways that Paul would say, no, you used to be Jews and you used to be Gentiles and now you're divided. Now you're united in Christ. And we still need to hear that message because we still tend to divide based on our worldviews and our politics and our preferences and things like that. The final thing that, that I found reading through Ephesians this week is from Ephesians 4.14. And Paul says there that it's hard to have Christian unity because of social and spiritual immaturity. In other words, we're all in a different place with our social and our spiritual maturity. And sometimes when somebody's at a different place with their social or spiritual maturity, it's, it's hard to have fellowship. It's hard to want to spend time with them. Ephesians 4.14 says, No longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind. And sometimes as we make progress in our social and spiritual maturity, it's tough to be around people that are still immature and tossed to and fro and carried about with the wind. And we'll get some good advice later on in Ephesians 4 about how to deal with that. But uh, I had kind of a funny image that I wanted to bring up. Have you guys ever seen this famous painting by Norman Rockwell? He's a great illustrator. He uses, uh, I, I think he uses oils, even though it almost looks like a photograph. He was just such a skilled illustrator. And I just want to point out that you can tell that this was a, Chris, a Thanksgiving dinner in the 1950s. And the reason that you can tell that is because everyone in the family is sitting around the same table, right? And if this was a Thanksgiving picture from 2021, that little girl on the left would have to be at a different table because she's gluten-free. <laughs> and that uncle in the corner would have to be at a different table because he's an avid Trump supporter and there's people that don't want to talk to him. And uh, that girl on the bottom right would have to be in the kitchen because she's deathly allergic to peanuts. There'd have to be another table for people that are lactose-free. And uh, there's people cropped out of the photo that haven't been vaccinated and they won't wear a mask, right? And, like, I'm trying to make you laugh, but I think I also want to point out that we live in such a hyper-divided time where even in family meals, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. And 
wouldn't it be better to just all be around the same table for a Thanksgiving meal? And I bring this up as a picture of the ideal of what church is supposed to be. Uh, Specifically in Ephesians 4.14, when Paul's saying, don't be immature, don't be tossed around, he's talking about theological differences, okay? Um, In my last church, I was also the coordinator of the the Bible studies, of the in-home small group Bible studies. And it was just a nightmare of a job because there would be some people that really, really liked Beth Moore Bible studies. But then there would be other people that just did not care for Beth Moore, right? And then there'd be some people that really liked Francis Chan or Rob Bell or any Christian writer that you can think of. But then there were other people that thought that they, they were leading the church astray and they, you know, the devil was... You know, and it's just like, it was so hard to keep track of who, belie- of, of who followed who and who supported who. And it's just a community killer, right? We can't be around the same table. We can't be one body when everybody is so uh, is stuck with that immaturity of being so divisive over who follows who and who agrees with who. And I think we all agree that is not what Paul is pointing us towards here in the book of Ephesians. So let's wrap up with uh, four principles or encouragements that hopefully remind us what our ideal is, that we're supposed to pursue Christian unity. And when those of us in this room right now can support and encourage and get along with one another, it will produce light and hope in the community that we do have a hope that's wor- that others would be worth pursuing. All right, the first thing that we see from today's passage, which is uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 6, is this. We can draw encouragement from the sacrifices that others have already made for the cause of Christian unity. So let me read to you Ephesians 4, 1 that says this. Pay attention to how it starts. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay? Paul, I'm, I'm guessing that he liked to remind people that he was a prisoner of the Lord, right? He does it in almost all of his writings, and uh, it's, it's kind of a way to draw attention, but I think, he's, I think his heart's in the right place. He's saying, I've, I've suffered for what I'm asking you guys to try in part. What I'm asking you to try a little, I've been beaten, and I've been shipwrecked, and I've been put in jail, right? Um, another place that we see this same thought as back in Ephesians 2.13 when it says this, But now in Christ Jesus you, were, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, the next time you're dealing with a Christian who's sort of hard to get along with, the next time you have uh, someone in your life who's a, a religious person who's, who's sort of hard to spend time with, remember that Paul was a prisoner of the Lord with the goal of creating Christian unity. Remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross to bring those who were far near together. So sometimes when I'm interacting with somebody that's just a little bit hard to get along with, I just remind myself that Paul suffered much more than I would have to for a two-minute conversation, right? Jesus Christ suffered much greater than I do to have to get through a 30-minute Bible study or whatever the context is. Do you guys want to reverse the progress towards Christian unity that Paul made as a prisoner of the Lord uh, just because you want to argue if hymns are better than contemporary worship songs? 
Do you guys want to reverse the progress that Jesus Christ made on the cross to bring those who were far near just to get one more person on your side about what service time our church should choose? Right? Like we, we have to remember it in that context that Christian unity is much more important than our individual preferences. Um, the second principle that we get to encourage us towards Christian unity comes in Ephesians 4, 2. And if you guys only remember one, let's try to remember this one. Ephesians 4, 2 says this. Remember, it's talking about this in the context of the importance of Christian unity. And it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay? Let me read that one more time. In the context of that one or two people that you just have a really tough time loving and getting along with, it says this as the antidote. It says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. In other words, the way that we show love to the immature is with humility and patience and gentleness. This is not a message that you will hear from the world. This is only something that you'll read in Scripture or in Ephesians. It says the way that we show love to the immature is to be humble and patient and gentle. Let me ask you guys this question. Uh, I better set it up first of all. Uh, I, I, I'm from Chicago. I love the Chicago Bears, but I spent most of my life in Wisconsin under the, the, my arch rival, the Green Bay Packers. They've had two Hall of Fame quarterbacks in a row. They kill the Bears every year, and it's created great misery in my life. <laughs> so the current quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, his name is Aaron Rodgers. He's extremely talented. He's probably one of the best quarterbacks that there's ever been. But he's very arrogant. And he has an expectation that everybody who coaches him or everybody that plays with him is also as excellent at their jobs that he is at his job. And sometimes when their performance doesn't match his, He'll get his coach fired or he'll get players cut from the team because he's that demanding with his expectations that everybody's that good at what they do as he is at what he does. And that's probably uh, permissible in the billion-dollar world of professional sports, but that wouldn't really cut it in other settings. So my hypothetical question for you is this. If you had to choose a kindergarten teacher for your child or your grandchild, would you rather have Aaron Rodgers or Mr. Rodgers? <laughs> who, who would you rather have? Would you rather have the most kind and patient and gracious per man that's probably ever lived? Or would you rather have someone that says, if you can't cut it, I'm going to get you out of here. And in Ephesians 4.2, Paul is saying, when there's, when there's someone that doesn't cut it, when there's somebody in the church who's immature... You, you, you can't say, you don't match where I'm at. You're out of here. I'm cutting you out. You can't be in this small group. You can't be in my social circle. He's saying that humility and patience and gentleness are the way that we show love to the immature. And I sure needed to hear that this week, and maybe you did too. Another way that we're encouraged to pursue Christian unity in the book of Ephesians as we start to wrap up comes in Ephesians 4.3. And it tells us to embrace the power and the role of the Holy Spirit as we try to be connected and unified with others. So Ephesians 4.3 says this, 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Holy Spirit, through the bond of peace. And this is a really interesting insight because as Protestants, we we sort of understand God in three ways, three parts. There's God, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So those are just kind of three different parts of God and the way that we access and understand God. And it's telling us here something really dynamic. In Ephesians 4.3, it's saying the Holy Spirit's main role is in pursuing Christian unity. And that should make us kind of pause because Christian unity is not 33% of what we think about and we pursue in our spirituality. Right? It's so easy to just cut somebody out who's immature. It's so easy to just avoid somebody that's sort of tough to deal with at church. But it's telling us here that the main role of the Holy Spirit is to pursue or to unify Christians. So I think you'd agree with me that there's a big disconnect here. And what I would like to suggest is that if we really take time to contemplate how important Christian unity is, not only the the three persons of God, but specifically the Holy Spirit, that should change our behavior and attitudes towards Christian unity. And, and And I think I can flesh that out a little bit with an illustration. Most of us go through a period in our childhood where we're very embarrassed by our parents. And we tell the, you know, we tell our mom that oh, those are such mom jeans, and you look, you know, you look like such a mom when you dress like that. And you know, our dads come in the room and they try to be funny in front of our friends, and we're like, oh, dad, you're so embarrassing. Nobody, nobody talks that way anymore. Nobody uses that expression. And you know, we're so embarrassed by our parents' lack of coolness. And then the universe pays us back when we become parents because <laughs> we commit to breaking the cycle by being being the coolest parents there's ever been. And then one day our kids in front of their friends say that we embarrass them, right? And the circle is complete. (laughs) But here's where I'm going with that. Somewhere during adolescence, we also have a realization that over 50% of every waking minute that our parents spend is to provide for us. And when they're shopping and they're doing laundry, and they're cooking, and they're going to work, like over 50 or 60% of every waking hour that our parents exist for the 20 year, our first 20 years of our life is for our benefit. They're working and they're providing for us. And when that light bulb goes on, that's the day that we stop making fun of our parents for not being as cool as we would want them to be. And what I'm trying to flesh out is that when we really realize our parents' role during those, that season of life, it changes our behavior and our attitudes in response to them. And in the same way, what I, I hope everybody is grasping that if the Holy Spirit's main job is to unify Christians, I hope our understanding of that role changes our attitudes and our behavior towards that same thing of Christian unity. Now let's wrap up with this. In Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, Paul kind of wraps up this thought by telling us that we need to unlearn the, the schisms of faith that we all have over time and sort of embrace the oneness of Christianity. And I know that can kind of sound universalist and that could maybe be misconstrued. So let's just read the text itself. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says this. There's one body and one spirit. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. If Paul is telling us that there's one God, one faith, one hope, why, why does almost every church in this country have a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Baptist church, an Assemblies of God church, a Catholic church, and the list goes on and on. I have no control over what other towns do. You guys have no control over what happens in other towns. But what we do have control over is what happens in this room. Right? And we can love each other in a way Maybe we start off by just tolerating each other. Maybe it starts off with spending time together. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, who exists primarily to unify us, with that power, we can love each other in a way that produces hope and new spiritual life in those who are observing us. Amen. So I'm just going to put away my notes and just speak from the heart. And maybe it's nothing that I haven't already said. But Paul is saying here that almost everybody in this room has one thing in common. We used to be in darkness, but now we're alive in Christ. We have a new spiritual life, and we now have a hope that God is going to make all things new. We have a hope that the things that we sing, the lyrics that we sing are true, and they're coming more and more true over time. That's what we all have in common. But if we tell the watching world that we're united in that hope and we can't even love each other, why would, they, why would they believe that they can leave darkness and enter into a new light? Like if we can't even live that out just with 40 or 50 or 60 people. So I, I think the problem with preachers is that they can start to sound pretty preachy. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to you. We are all being challenged here in Ephesians. Not to connect over singleness or marriedness, not to connect over politics, not to connect over economic class, but those of us in this room are called by Paul and called by God to share a, new, a newness in Christ, a new spiritual life that we've all experienced at one point in our past, and then to foster a love and an affection for one another through the help of God as we share that in common. So as the worship team comes forward to close our service, I hope that uh, Ephesians 4, 1-6 has challenged you like it's challenged me. We can't just flip a switch and decide to love people, uh, but that's what the Holy Spirit is for. God is going to help us in this endeavor. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Be light. Let's think about how being unified with one another is part of that call for us to be light.